Alexi Sale is a writer and a comedian who helped shift the whole trajectory of British comedy in the early 1980s. Alexi Sale had the same impact on comedy that the Sex Pistols had on rock and roll. From the moment he hit the stage on London's Comedy Store, Alexi Sale made most of Britain's comedy establishment look a bit stale and irrelevant. He was described in those early years by the London Review of Books, of all places, as a portly, spring-heeled Liverpudlian with a convict haircut, a desperate Dan chin and an Oliver Hardy silkette suit, well-buttoned at his bulging gut, a big man who can move like lightning, a pathologically aggrieved pub lout who's read some books. Alexi Sailor is also the author of several novels, as well as two volumes of memoirs. The first was called Stalin Ate My Homework, which was an account of his early years, growing up as the only son of two ardent communists in Liverpool. And this was followed by his new book, Thatcher Stole My Trousers. I spoke to Alexi Sale at the recent Melbourne Writers' Festival in front of a huge and very enthusiastic audience in Federation Square. You grew up with two wonderful parents, loved you deeply, you're the only son, ardent communists, Joe and Molly. Tell me a bit of a picture of Joe, what he was like, the work he did. Uh, Joe was um, a railway guard, a member of the Communist Party. It's odd having a father who's a railway guard because we got trains everywhere because, yeah, we got free travel, but uh, he was always getting off the train. You'd be, like, the train would be pulling out the station and I'd see me dad kind of walking the other way. <laughs> and we used to travel a lot in, like, continental Europe and where the trains would, like, pull in. Because he had this, like, just really casual attitude, obviously being a guard to get on. So the train would pull in and then it'd pull out and then pull back in on another platform, you know. But you'd be in the middle of Stuttgart and my dad would be in the street outside buying furniture or something, you know. So <laughs> uh, that was kind of unsettling, really. But he was a very, he was a very, ge- I mean, he was a very genial man. Um, and he also... It was one of the f- what our family's lies that we thought we spoke um, foreign languages because my dad supposedly spoke this thing called Esperanto, which was this thing. It was, it was this Your thing dad was, spoke it, Esperanto? Esperanto was this thing that was, in, it was supposed to be one of them things that was invented in the, in the early 20th century that uh, was supposed to make the world a better place, you know, like fascism. <laughs> we'd all speak the same language hey, there was we'd amalgamation, all speak the same, yes. except it seemed to be mostly just English words with boingio put at the end of them you know so it'd be like me gusto boingio una sandwichio boingio <laughs> my mother was supposed to well, spoke Yiddish supposedly but really she just screamed at people to let <laughs> they did what she wanted yeah, temperamentally she was quite different from your dad yeah she was uh, insane yeah <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you think that kind of initial uh, persona you had on stage, that explosive persona of yours, that would come on stage and actually just shout at people, there's a bit of your mum in that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a genetic thing that she, you know, she could go from uh, zero to screaming hysteria in, in, in a few seconds, you know. And um, she became, at one point, she became a lollipop lady. And, uh, but, you know, like normally the deal with a lollipop lady is you stay, like, on a crossing or a corner. But she gave herself a much more roving brief. <laughs> and, uh, like, so, so no driver was safe anywhere in most of North Liverpool. Like, day or night, she'd be kind of... <laughs> it would, it would just earn the enmity of a lot of mo- passing motorists. Hated it. But then communists, you know, the only good car, you know, communists only like cars if they were armoured and painted green, you know. 
preferably putting down an uprising. Did they tend to see every, every, pretty much everything in everyday life through the prism of their communist beliefs? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we thought of ourselves as being, uh, knowing the secrets, you know, to the world, you know, everything. You know, like any cult, in a sense, you think you know the secret. And we reveled in it. We also reveled in our difference. And the, my first day of primary school, when the teacher, Miss Wilson, she said, let's put our hands together, class, and thank God for the milk. And I said, uh, no, Miss Wilson, um, I think you'll find that the milk is provided by the milk marketing board. <laughs> which is a semi-autonomous... <laughs> buys up the milk and thereby holding up the price and further oppressing the working class. <laughs> and it, it was a kind of barometer of like, Liverpool being such a kind of left-wing city that I wasn't beaten up, uh, you know, in the playground. You weren't allowed to see Bambi as a small child. Was this because they were <laughs> frightened that you'd be subjected to the horror of seeing Bambi's mother killed? Yeah. Well, my, my, my mother was a weird kind of mixture of, um, you know, bloodthirsty revolutionary, but also she was really... I mean, it, it, she didn't want me to see Bambi because of that scene where, uh, you know, uh, Bambi's mother's killed by hunters in the forest. Spoiler alert. And... Um, <laughs> late for that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but so instead, they understood that I'd missed out on a, on a cultural event, you know. So instead, we went to see a screening of Sergei Eisenstein's 1938 film, Alexander Nevsky, in which there are several scenes of ritualistic child sacrifice. <laughs> In Australia, there, there used to be this, and still is to some degree, this great culture of working class people, and, and shearers particularly, being autodidacts. Uh, yeah. Workers who, at the end of the day, they'd, they'd be too far out in the outback to watch TV, so they had these amazing bookshelves, and you had these extraordinary conversations in pubs, like the most intellectual conversations I've had have been in pubs in country Queensland for some reason. Was it like that in Liverpool? Too? Yeah, Liverpool was particularly strong on the, on the autodidact, really. But also, Liverpool was a fight in town. So you'd often, like, a fight would break out in the pub about the legacy of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> Don't you understand that the impression of the Balkan people was, ah, you know, Metternich was the greatest criminal, you know. You, you just mentioned there that communism was like a cult for them. Yeah. And, and were you brought into that cult like, as, like, like you would if you were a Scientologist or something? Yeah, you? well, as I say, I kind of inherited my communism like a dukedom, really. So um, you joined the, the Young Communist League and then uh, you would graduate. But my act of rebellion against my parents was that I... When I became a teenager, rather than um, join the CP like them, I actually went further left, and I joined this Maoist group. And so we'd have these rows at the breakfast table. You know, Don't call your mother a running dog reactionary, Alexi. <laughs> <laughs> but she is, Dad. A shame a mouse says she's waving the red flag to defeat the red flag. <laughs> Now it seems you're still a man of the left, but you're an ex-communist. Yeah. Are you an ex-communist in the way people become ex-Catholics? I mean, you, you have some broad sympathy, remaining sympathy for the overall ideas of social justice, but a kind of a horror at the same time, and you sort of love it, hate it. Yeah, I, well, I think, I mean, I think a lot of my work, you know, I mean, certainly then and even now is about uh, critiquing the left, you know, and um, one of the fascinations was for me that, that my parents were genial, decent people. And because they wanted a better life for people, they therefore turned a blind eye to, you know, the, the excesses of the Soviet Union. I mean, I'm a 
Uh, you know, my, my mother would never admit at the end of her day that there was anything wrong with the Soviet experiment. The most she would say was mistakes were made. But she said you can't make an omelette without murdering 40 million people. <laughs> But it's that, it's that, so I've, got, I've had this endless fascination with that, really, the, how these good intentions tip over into mass murder, you know, because of a, a desire, you know, and it's just, I mean, it, 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 it's a, a fault of the left to, to do that and to see oppressed people as being necessarily noble and, and, and all, that, all that that is problematic about the left has been very much the, the source of my work. But, yeah, I still, you know, I still support various doomed causes, uh, particularly uh, Palestinian struggle, which, um, you know, is going really well. Um, <laughs> with my help, I think we've got that sorted, really, you know. It seems to be one of the things that defeated you from communist organisations was the meetings. So the, the late Australian writer Bob Ellis used to have one of his ma maxims of life was power flows to the most boring person in the room. <laughs> Because in the meeting, everyone wants to go home and make dinner, and the boring man is going... He says, this is why John Howard was successful. Um, <laughs> because they sit there and they just and go, oh, God, all right, yes, can I go home now and get out of the room? Is that your experience of power flowing to the most boring individual in the room? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think they, you know, it's often thought that that, that was uh, used as a tactic. You know, the only people who took us little left-wing groups seriously in the 60s and 70s really were the securities services and so you know particularly the most radical ones in fact were in mi6 or whatever you know and there's a, a gk chesterton story called the man who was thirsty where it turns out that this anarchist group everybody in it is a police spy you know <laughs> somebody asked me years ago you know did your family have a police a special branch file and i said well, we certainly hope so i mean we and one of the things we used to do on the phone uh, was, because we, we thought it was being tapped, we, we'd speak in code, so uh, your friend would ring up and say, you come to the football match, and I'd say, the eagle is in the balustrade. <laughs> I've interviewed many people who've written memoirs, and I've heard stories of people of their experiences as being drug dealers. Uh, <laughs> you <laughs> had an experience in your teenage years as a drug dealer, yeah. which to me, I have to say, I think is the most shocking account <laughs> of being a drug dealer I've ever had. Could you please explain yourself, sir? 50, 50 I Well, yeah, when I was like really quite young, and I, I just... I'm a very odd kid, so I used to kind of take on these personas, and so I... I um, do things really to impress these people who, this kind of group of people who live inside my head. Uh, one's a red Indian, one's a construction worker. <laughs> uh, and so I decided I'd like to be a drug dealer because it seemed really cool. But I realised I couldn't get cheap drugs because that's what you do. You, you buy the drugs cheap and sell them, uh, you know, with simple Marxist economics, so really. So, um, so what I used to do was, this generally, I used to buy drugs at a normal street price out of town outside Liverpool and then sell them to my friends about 15% less than I'd paid for them. <laughs> uh, which contradicts every known form of Marxist theory since, the, you know, the, the, the employer, you know, me, was ex essentially extracting surplus value from himself. But I th when I t first met my wife, Linda, I, I told her about this, expecting her to be kind of... Uh, kind of shocked and impressed and she said it was the saddest thing she'd ever heard. <laughs> what gave you the idea that a working class kid from Liverpool could go to a posh art school, the Chelsea School of Art in London? 
partly, I mean, that was one of the great things about my parents, that there was never any... I mean, my wife lived in a, a, a kind of even more kind of solidly working-class uh, neighbourhood than ours. It's kind of Victorian uh, terraces. I mean, she, I mean, she'd tell... Really kind of Dickensian in a way. She'd, she'd tell me about one family... Oh, on, a, on a Thursday after the husband's wages had run out, every week they'd pawn their cat. <laughs> and they'd take this cat kind of like to the... Uh, the pawn shop, and then they pawn it, and it'd sit in the window, kind of like, and then they'd redeem it on the Monday when the husband kind of. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they were oppressed by the neighbours, you know, by what the neighbours would think, whereas we deliberately wanted to scandalise the neighbours. I and mean, one of the proudest things that we felt in my family was that we ate salad. <laughs> My mother would say, hey, look at them people that are eating beef, we're eating salad. Really, it was only lettuce and boiled eggs, but, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like, not what you get now, like, you know, arugula and carb bumper and... Uh... <laughs> so, yeah, we reveled in our difference, really, and so, you know, so I never thought that, uh, you know, that I, I couldn't go to somewhere like Chelsea. Also, when I applied to Foundation College, which is the two-year course before our tour at Southport, my mum went to me um, interview, so I was, I was away hitchhiking in Europe, so my mum went, so I was... <laughs> I was never quite sure if I'd got in on my mum, really, but... Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, so, then, uh, yeah, so then I went to Chelsea, you know, and I was, I was so full of myself that, you know, that I'd got into the, you know, the finest painting academy uh, in, in the land, really, and then it was... Uh, I mean, the reason I went to art school was all because I was desperate to get a higher education, but because I was on academic, uh, you know, going to art school was the only way I was going to get to kind of a university-like uh, entity. So. But this is where you met rich kids for the first time. Yeah, what was well, it like to meet rich kids, a previously heretofore <laughs> unknown species of human in your yeah. life? Yeah, well, they were, we knew rich people, but the only time it was like cartoons in the Communist Party paper, you know, where they were all fat with top hats with dollar signs on them, you know, and <laughs> smoking a cigar and kind of grinding the faces of <laughs> peasants. So when, you know, you meet these, like, Anthony Arbuthnot, Forster Skew, and he's not just like, you're like, whoa, that's weird. My first uh, week of college in an art history lecture, the, the lecturer put up a slide of a Van Gogh painting, and, and uh, a girl in my class said, oh, well, yeah, I know that. Uh, the original's in the hall of our flat in Rome. <laughs> not even in the living room. <laughs> Man, you hear idea of a hall of mine might have been, uh, you know, uh, somewhat different. different right? Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it was shocking. I mean, I was genuinely because also before at school and at, at foundation college, I'd been in the the top gang, you know, and in a way, the, the posh kids just found me confusing, really, and they didn't. I wasn't like the kind of working class kid that they wanted to adopt or anything, and so. Were you horrible to them, or, or, or no? I was not really, because I was too kind of intimidated by them. I think I was just, I was just perplexed, really. I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, unsettled by their confidence, really. You know, and London's a very, you know, a very intimidating city, anyway. And I'd, I'd also made the mistake of rather than moving into the college's hall of residence, I was living in a in a derelict basement with a load of Arabs uh, that I, I knew Palestinians that I knew from uh, from Liverpool. So. Um, uh, that was a terrible mistake, really. You, you, you write that, uh, and you, you, meant you paraphrased it a bit earlier, but I'll, I'll quote in full because it's worth quoting here. You write in your book, as far back as I could remember, 
and becoming more pronounced once I got to my teenage years, my inclination was to make important life decisions based not upon what was sensible or right or appropriate, but rather on what I thought might sound impressive to some imaginary people who lived inside my head. These people encouraged me to make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> now, but it sounds to me what that really is, is some kind of incoherent voice of ambition, really, sort of yeah. eating away at you at this point. And an obsession with being different, I think, really. Yeah. But yes, ambition in the sense of, of being some kind of distinct personality, you know. And I, I, didn't, I didn't at all um, fit in at, at Chelsea, really, because it was a... You know, and I, I wanted desperately to fit in, but I couldn't go along with the bollocks that everybody was talking, you know, really, because the thing, you know, the thing about modern art was not that you paint a good painting, that you talk a good painting, really. So you say, well, this is, you know, it's essentially a critique of the, uh, the French kind of neo-colonialist uh, uh, experience. You know, this would be said of a, a kind of pile of fire extinguishers covered in glue. Yeah. <laughs> tampon and a teacup on top of a TV monitor playing yeah. Gilligan's Island. Oh, yeah, 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 all that. I mean, in the same way as I never fitted into the, the Maoist because I could never call anybody com comrade, I also I couldn't fit into Chelsea because I wouldn't talk that nonsense, you know. I mean, I would say of my own paintings, well, it's, uh, it's like, a, like it's about some people uh, running about. LAUGHTER <laughs> <laughs> Well, this guy's never, you know. <laughs> also, you seem to see a lot of performance art that was yeah. performed literally to no one at all, and that yeah. was the point. Yeah, there's, yeah. well, I came across a guy in the, on a Saturday uh, in the foyer dragging a tree around, and uh, I, I said, what are you doing? He said, performance art. And I said, I said there's nobody here. And, and he said, exactly. <laughs> You, you met your wife, Linda, who yeah. you're still married to today, in, in Liverpool. Uh, what, tell me what your first proper date in a, in a restaurant was like. <laughs> well, that's a, it's a, yeah. What did you well, wear? Well, I, I wore me, um, well, I wore me sailor trousers that buttoned up the front. I, um, <laughs> I used to buy all my clothes from, like, um, army surplus stores. I was thinking it would have been cheaper to join the army, but... Uh, I remember when we went on our honeymoon a few years later to Guernsey and I bought this new jacket from a surplus store and it was kind of grey with, um, it was grey with like big, big black cuff that came to a point like that and uh, it was only after people kept asking me what time the last bus was to St. Peter bought that I realised it was a bus driver's jacket. So, um, but yeah, the first, uh, we, we went to, I took it, I wanted to take it to a, a, a posh restaurant but uh, it was really, it was Chinese restaurant, but it was really just a chip shop. Um, it seems like you were trying to impress Linda, and she forgave you for trying to impress her. Like, you're, you're trying to impress her, she, she can see that, and she doesn't mind. And yeah, she's still... no, it's, well, it's the, the story of our marriage, really. Is, what, do you, uh, what, did she, what do you think? You said she was able to see something in you, though, that no one else could at the yeah, time, yeah. except maybe your mother. But what, what was that? What did, she, did she ever tell you what that was? Uh, just a, a, I mean, she... she um, Saw that I just had a uni, that I was funny uh, from the start, and that um, she just perceived that I was, uh, you know, unlike anybody else, really. Uh, I was just, a, you know, I mean, extremely odd. And she did kind of, you know, I mean, socialise me, really. I mean, she did. I was such an odd, uh, I was such a strange boy. You know, there's the, you know, we were walking along one day, and I, with Linda's mother was behind us, and I suddenly I heard her say, What's he doing now? 
And I just started walking like a chimp. <laughs> but I'd affected Linda so much that she didn't notice. She got... She kind of... <laughs> She made me into a, a kind of human, really. You know. you, you, you've done so many jobs before you took up comedy, so many different yeah. jobs, stint, sweeping floors in the factory, yeah. teaching. For a while, you worked in the British Civil Service. Was anyone working in the British Civil <laughs> Service in that office you were in at all at that well, time? Well, it was, it was, you know, when you graduate from art school, you know, uh, you, you, you kind of come out and you think you can go down the job centre, you know, and go, yeah, well, they're, they're crying out for watercolourists at Ford's, you know. <laughs> Harrods are looking for five, you know, five performance artists, you know. Right, this, you know, get down there right away. They want people to kind of sit in baths of liver, you know. You know? <laughs> so there's no work, really, when you, when you come out of art school, unless you're part of the, you know, the, the very small number of the kind of elite. And so, yeah, I did uh, all kinds of jobs. But, yeah, I mean, the, my idea of the, um, the civil service was that, in a way, it was a kind of... A kind of covet form of su- su- subsidy for the arts, really, because in my office there was four of us and enough work for one trained chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and like one guy was learning to play the balalaika, you know, the Russian folk instrument, and I was like writing film scripts or something. And the, the, the other clerk was running a knitwear business. Uh, Running the office. Yeah, she'd like knit all day, and then she'd use these civil service stationery in the post room to send out the 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 the, 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 the pullovers that she'd made. You know, she'd they'd arrive. You know, with DHSS kind of uh, on them. Uh, yeah, and, and there was one woman who did you know the tiny bit of work, but um, so I just thought well, this is some kind of you know they're just. Subs- a kind of subsidy, you know. So. You, you formed a Brechtian theatre group with yeah. a couple of friends and you're able to get laughs quite easily on stage. But um, you notice there seemed to be... Well, aversion might be a strong word, but the other players didn't seem to care about getting laughs. When they did, they didn't seem to want to get them the next night. Well, no, I think that that was... Um, well, several things, really. When I joined this, it was a, you know, it was a very fringe theatre group that a friend of mine, whose parents were also in the Communist Party, had, had founded. And, and, and I felt very at home. I mean, it's the first time I felt I belonged, in a way, when I joined that group. But one of the things that struck me just technically was, and, and kind of taught me as well that I was innately a comic, was that, one, that the actors would, would get a laugh one night on something and then would do it different the next night. And I thought, you know, if you know how to get the laugh just do it the same every night, you know? Because that's the game, but actors have got the kind of, I'll I'll do it as an old Serbian woman tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, when the group broke up and uh, it was just me and Bill left and I started, my partner Bill, we started writing, I wrote comedy for us. And again, Bill was infuriating because he'd he'd get it one night out of four, you know? And... um, it just kind of drove me nuts that he couldn't see. And I, you know, I would see where the gag was and bang, bang, bang. Same place, same intonation. Because the, that's the, where you get your biggest laugh. That's the point of a gag, is to get the biggest laugh. And you do it in the way that gets, 
You know, I mean, there's a, there's a cartoon published years ago in the New Yorker of a critic sort of hollow-eyed, sort of slumping into a theatre show, and he sits down and it's it, and he starts laughing and uh, laughing and la- and then la- really laughing, and then the whole audience are laughing hysterically and wiping away tears of their eyes, and then he goes back to the office and says, "Well, it was a bit jejun, and um, <laughs> it, it was not plot- plotted well. The script was unconvincing." Uh, do you think there's a bit of a... It's a funny thing to say, but comedy doesn't seem to get respect. Oh, there doesn't seem to be a kind of a recognition of how profound it is to laugh. Well, that's the... You know, I mean, that's obviously the constant complaint of, of, of people in the comedy. You know, but they used to give reviews of, like, well, of course it's funny, but... It's a comedy! <laughs> You know, <laughs> review where we were told we were not as funny as we seemed. <laughs> the philosophical implications of that can yeah. occupy a conference for a month, I think. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, uh, you know, if you, are, I mean, particularly doing narrative comedy, you obviously you have to fulfil all the rules of drama and so on. But you have to, on top of that, you have to be funny as well. And no, it is just. It is, uh, you know, profoundly um, disrespected. And, you know, the gloomy dramas about... It, what, you know, the go-to subject used to be AIDS, didn't it, really? That, that, you know, you'd make a drama about kind of people with AIDS in Belfast or something being... <laughs> were in the IRA or something, and, <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd win all the comedy awards. <laughs> when did it dawn on you that you didn't need uh, a Brechtian drama, you just wanted to do comedy? Um, well, yeah, well, when the theatre group split up, really, and I... Uh, I mean, I think Australian people understand this, because I think there was the same kind of void, wasn't there, here as there was in, in Britain, that there'd been a kind of disruption, really, between the, the death of the musical. I used to do that line about people, you know, theorise about why the musical died out. I'll tell you why it died out, because it was shite. <laughs> but... Um, we never kind of evolved in the same way as they did in the States to the smart kind of political club comic. There was either University Review, the odd folk musician like Billy Connolly or Jasper Carrot, or these terrible, terrible racist stand-up comedians, you know. And, um, but the, there was an audience, there was my generation of university-educated working-class kids who were crying out for some stand-up, really. You know, smart comedy about drugs and lifestyle and politics. And, and so I thought I would write it then, and that's, that's basically what I did. And then me and Bill went out and performed it to nobody. <laughs> but also, at the time when we played the skinhead disco. <laughs> and we went on after the avant-garde dance troupe. <laughs> but we didn't know how to use microphones. And I remember, you know, the MC and one club or somewhere we played, you know, coming on and threatening the audience and saying, give these young lads a chance, you know, they've come a long way. And that was humiliating. So, um, you know, I got to hone my craft, but we existed in isolation, really. You uh, famously opened up the comedy store on its first night by answering an ad in the private eye. I think your wife yeah. saw it and yeah. said, comedians wanted a new, new comedy club. You showed up and had this kind of feeling, even at the audition, that something about this was truly special. Explain to me what that week was like, the between the, the audition and the actual opening night yeah, of the comedy well, store. I mean, I just, my sense was that I was never going to get on until I found a venue to do the kind of, kind of comedy I wanted to do. And also other performers who shared, you know, what, why I wanted to do, so we would become a kind of 
a movement. So I sensed that the comedy store was going to provide that. But those working men's club guys had so denigrated the idea of becoming a comedian that if you know if you told you know like a university educated kid told their mother in 1979 that they wanted to become a comedian well, your mother would start weeping you know and say wouldn't you like to become a bomb disposal expert instead you know or join the nazi party i don't know but um so so there was no acts there was a woman on before me auditioning who uh, she had all victorian ironmongery hanging from her and she sang i'm only a bird in a gilded cage <laughs> And she wasn't by any way the worst act on that first. Uh, we had to have her. I mean, she was like, oh, she's straight in. Uh, but, yeah, but I struggled for a long time just to find a way to describe that week. Because it was a week running up to the opening of the comedy store that felt so full of promise, really, that I knew... I was on the verge of, of something, for me, that was going to be epochal. And it's just... I mean, the way I, I, I tried endless drafts for months and months and months just to try and make it work and in the end the closest I got to it was that like, ABBA song you know the day before you came where you know she describes you know I must have gone for lunch with the usual crowd the same old talk you know on the day before you came and it was like that really that you know the day before she kind of met her lover and in a way that was what the comedy store was like there was the, the week was a kind of blare running up to this opening night really and then there's opening night and you burst out onto the stage hyper aggressive dangerous, jumping out of your skin. Were you shocked in that moment how, at how intense you were? Yeah, monstering kinda. the audience, monstering them. Yeah. Not trying to be liked either. Not trying to be endearing in any way, but monstering the audience. I don't know where it came from, but it was the conventional entertainer would come on and go, you know, you're a lovely audience, you know, and we're going to have a wonderful time. And I'd say, you're a pile of shitbags. The acts are awful. I don't know what you're doing here, really, and I'm likely to hit you. So, um, <laughs> it very much wasn't the conventional show business model. <laughs> but I felt I had to be honest with you. And what I would do was, because the acts were so, a lot of them were so bad, I would try and build them up. But then, when they inevitably failed, I would be vile about them afterwards, you know, which in retrospect was extraordinarily cruel. <laughs> but, you know, I thought, well, it's the, the night is what matters. And the inescapable truth of what had just happened on stage. Yeah, yeah, too. you can't, you know, not acknowledge it, really. That's the thing with comedy, though, isn't it? I mean, it's funny or it's not, isn't it? I mean, if it gets laughs, it gets an audience. Yeah. You think that's a kind of an irrefutable proof of, of its merit and its worth, or not? Um, up until Michael McIntyre, maybe, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've... <laughs> yeah, we it, yeah. Did you get him here? Yeah. Theoretically, yes, but, um, you know, there are a lot of shit comics who get big laughs, so it's a, it's a more complex proposition than that. But certainly at the comedy store, it's just that the audiences like some people and hate other people, that within a few seconds somebody would come on, and even if they had semi-decent material, that the audience just couldn't stand them, you know, and would, try and would want to gong them off, really. And so. A lot of the way you define them, you know, you started to attract other performers around you at the time you emerged, uh, Rick Mayall, Adrian Ebenson, Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders, other performers appearing at the same time, Tony Allen, Keith Allen. And the thing that seems to define you, or you, you say that defines you, is what it's not, which is it's, it's not sexist and it's not racist, as opposed to the club comedians that were successful in Britain at the time. Yeah. But, but is there another way, is there a way to talk about what it was rather than what it wasn't? Well, I mean, the, I mean what it wasn't was important in that opposition to those old school guys. 
Their focus was very narrow, really, which was, you know, the wife's mother and Pakistanis. I mean, that was really all they talked about. Whereas my subject matter could be art and design or, you know, Brecht or politics or drugs or habitat furniture and stuff. And and similarly, um, all the other acts would also do stuff that was to a degree erudite and was also... But it could go anywhere, really, you know. So, yes, it wasn't that stuff, but then I think it was pretty much everything else. I think that one of the truths of comedy is, is that one thing an audience really wants is authority, actually, on yeah. stage. And you had that with that persona. Is that something you quickly came to realise, that authority is actually required? Yes, it's vital. I mean, because, I mean, there's nothing worse than seeing a comic dying, really. And so the audience will do, as they were given at the comedy store, the opportunities to get them off, they would uh, do it because they wanted to avoid that embarrassment. And yeah, and particularly that place, because it started at midnight, it was in a strip club, you know, it was full of drunks. And Soho was very rough then. You know, you could drive into the centre of London then and park your car, but when you got back to it, it'd probably be on fire. <laughs> and it was vital that I imposed my authority on that audience right away. And I did that, yeah, through a kind of uh, violence, really. I mean, a violent and aggressive manner, yeah. yeah. What happened the first time you used a gun on stage? (laughs) Well, I didn't use it. I mean, I didn't shoot anybody. But, well, that was one night I decided to take the weekend off. And then I got drunk at home and then I decided I'd turn up. and And I did this act that I'd workshopped at a pub that we used to play regularly called the Elgin in Ladbroke Road, which had gone down really well. But everybody at the Elgin was on heroin. So you could have, you could have kind of waved some broccoli at them and they would have laughed. So they weren't, they weren't reliable, really, to try out new material. So I'd done this act with a quiz where I threatened to shoot the audience with this very realistic-looking air pistol. So I turned up drunk and I found out a truism that I always tell young comics, that if you, if you point a gun at the audience, it makes them nervous. Yeah, I mean, you know, who'd think of that? So they were howling at me to get off, and it was a... I realised in that moment that, uh, you know, they didn't know that I was the regular MC because it was a different audience every week. It was also the first night that Rick and Aid turned up, and they came on after me, and they went down a storm. Anybody would have gone down a storm after the drunk guy with the gun, you know. (laughs) So what happened to that gun, though? Because you you said it was the gun's fault. It's It's the the gun's gun's fault. fault. Yeah, because I had... bought it out of a catalogue and I hadn't paid for it because I, I pretended it was faulty and um, Rick and Aid Rick and Aid borrowed it for a sketch that they did where they held the audience hostage and that too went down very badly again because <laughs> you know the gun was stolen from the, the council flat that they lived in and was used uh, to hold up a post office and the bloke who was holding up the post office was shot by policemen with real guns. So that was the bad karma in the gun. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because you yeah. didn't pay for it out of the postal catalogue. Yeah, it was the gun's fault. <laughs> it was really. the gun's it's, fault. Uh, it's not me and my stupid ideas. Earlier on, you got that image where you wore that amazing tight silk suit, uh, the white shirt, the black tie, Doc Martin uh, shoes, and went back and watched the film clip of Hello, John, Got a New Mo, uh, yeah. which I hadn't seen for a very, very long time. And, and watching you move in that is really amazing, Alex. You've got this really 
amazing dance style as a, as a, as a big guy <laughs> yeah. moving about that's kind of jerky and spasmodic. And I was wondering where you get that from. Like jo- Johnny Rotten has said that he got his kind of dance moves from watching uh, a production of Richard III uh, with Larry <laughs> Olivier as the bottled spider and old Steptoe. That was him. I'm just wondering what you were thinking when you had that kind of really eclectic dance move of yours. I just thought I was really good. <laughs> I thought what? I was Michael Jackson, really. I don't, I don't know what you're going on about. It's <laughs> perfectly valid disco. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just think, obviously, it was, a, it, was a, it was a kind of cruel parody of kind of disco. Or, I don't know what it was. But I just, uh, my feeling has always been as a comic that you should use, if you can do something, you, you should use it, really. And so I knew that I could sort of, you know, that I was physically... You know, that contrast between being heavy set but bouncing around. I mean, it's something that you see used an awful lot now. The heavy set guy dancing. I mean, I'm much better, than, better choreographed than me now, but that's a kind of trope of a lot of comedy stuff now, isn't it? You know? Around the time you started meeting some of those older comedians who were doing that old stuff that you, you really yeah. hated, what was it like to meet those guys? What, what were their lives like? They seemed sad, really. They seemed miserable. Because they had to pretend to be nice, they were actually horrible men pretending to, you know, kind of pretending to be nice, whereas we were nice boys and girls pretending to be nasty in a way. That that was the kind of juxtaposition. But they were all, like, taking coke and, you know, doing stuff that we couldn't afford. So, um... <laughs> I felt sorry for them, really, in a way, because I think... I think a lot of it was, looking at it kindly, was probably kind of thwarted ambition that they'd, again, they'd been working class and they'd had this urge to perform, but the only way that they could get on was to do this vile material. Uh, you know, I mean, Lenny Henry comes in, he's well known here, isn't he? He comes out here. And Lenny is contorted with guilt because he was in this show, when he was 15, he was in this show called The Black and White Minstrels, you know, which was a, an N-word minstrel show in blackface. Now, I told Lenny to tell people that um, he was reforming them from the inside. <laughs> uh, and by the time he left, they were the black and white panthers. <laughs> zing, 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 went the trolley. <laughs> Burned down the white power structure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they would just seem sad lonely. They're a good pointer in a way to how not to live your life, I think. The Young Ones came along and that had such an impact, that show. How dangerous was it to work on the set of The Young Ones? (laughs) Yeah, well, there was no such thing as, like, health and safety then. And so, because there was no health and safety, you know, it was like the Somme in kind of 1960. There was no safety harnesses, there was no CGI. You know, in the pilot, Adrian bites into a brick which then explodes and that was done by the simple expedient of putting an explosive in a brick <laughs> uh, the special effects guys never trust a special effects guy who's got three fingers and an iPad <laughs> Rick was always being I cut his head open with the butt of a shotgun Rick was always being taken to hospital or anything You've been always quite an ambitious guy, um, but it seems like you had a really complicated idea of what 
your ambition should be. Like you wanted to be successful and acknowledged, but within certain parameters that were politically acceptable to you. Was there a point when you actually could allow yourself the thought, I've, I've done this thing now, those voices that I was trying to make happy ought to be happy now? Well, to some extent, but then there, was all, there always was a contradiction, really. On the one hand, I was determined to become the biggest entertainer of all time with this you know, distinctly family, unfriendly performance style. And it just was irreconcilable, really. So I was always coming up against the limitations of, of what I could do, whereas the young ones, in a way, was more... I'd st- I was the big star in the club and that, and then... You know, one of the things was that when the young ones went out live, that they they were playing three or four nights at venues that I could play one night as. And I I saw that they were surpassing me, and that was very traumatic. At the time, though, we saw you doing what you were doing, and it looked like you didn't have to make any of those compromises. We didn't see all this other crap that you weren't all that happy with. We just saw it being very successful and entirely on your own terms. Yes, I, I mean, it's maybe... I mean, maybe I should have been more relaxed about it, really, but you can't... I mean, one of the, the, the problems is, I think, about being an entertainer, that you can't see yourself from the outside because you're in the middle of it, really. And so I was always dissatisfied, really, with how I was being perceived and stuff and it was you know in retrospect it's kind of stupid really I I should have uh, just enjoyed what I had but I was always endlessly kind of railing against stuff really it's gone I've not a big laugh for a few minutes have I which is making me uh, (laughs) making me uncomfortable well that's good let me (laughs) let me let me make you let me make you more uncomfortable too because um you write that your mum for a while seemed to be coming more and more out of control, but really, you say she really wasn't any different, but your dad wasn't quite around to restrain her. What happened to your dad? Why did, why did he sort of slip away from yeah, you? Yeah, well, I think he... I mean, nobody knew. I mean, I guess it was Alzheimer's. It might have been a series of small strokes, but he... And nobody kind of really knew what it was, really. So he just, you know, his memory started going, and he started to... He started to fade as a person. Um, and the corollary of that was that my mother, he'd, he'd been a restraining influence on it, that she started to kind of grow and grow and grow as a, as a personality. I threw a dinner party when I bought a, when I, my second year student, and, but because I didn't know how to cook, uh, Molly came down on the train with a chicken and cooked it and then went back to Liverpool. <laughs> But uh, that meant I'd given her permission to come and visit me because you could never, because we got free rail travel, you could never get away from the sales. That we, you could, we'd meet you on a bus uh, in London, but then you lived in, in Inverness or somewhere in the islands of Scotland, but we'd still turn up on your doorstep. <laughs> um, and so Molly would constantly turn up, and she'd been Secretary of Medical Aid for Vietnam. And, and so one time she came to visit me, and we were walking through Bayswater, and she suddenly said, Oh, I know some people who live here. And she ran over the road and hammered on this door, and it said on the door, legation of the People's Republic of Vietnam. And this bloke, Vietnamese bloke, opened the door, and he went, Oh, hello, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you better come in, you know. We'll get the ambassador out of bed. William McInnes, another writer, talks about his dad had Alzheimer's and got to a point where he went to see his dad, and his dad had no idea who he was and William was trying to tell him he loved him and, and his dad 
couldn't quite see why he was talking like this, and then William burst into tears, and he said, oh, how about this young fella? I think he's, I think he's missed his bus or something. <laughs> it was like that, and, and which made him laugh, of course, but all this. Did you have moments like that with your dad? Did he, lose, um, did he forget who you were at any point? Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, all that stuff. I mean, but it's also that thing, isn't it, that... Um so, I can't remember who it was. He said, show me a comedian and I'll show you somebody's father died when they were 11. And that's so true. Yeah, There's so is. much truth in it that. Is. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that, essentially, that's what, although he, he didn't physically die, he, he faded away when I was 11, 12. And my mother was spectacularly ill-equipped to cope with it, really. I mean, the explanation, I would think, for that is because, because the world seems out of control, then you become a comedian, so, you know, you can control at least people in that room, really, I think. In so many ways, this book's a document of a vanished world. Uh, it, like, Britain in the 80s, as I remember, it was, it, it was a terrible place to live in in so many ways. Food was disgusting. Yeah. The accommodation was revolting and too expensive. But there was so much going on. Now it seems, correct me if I'm wrong here, that the quality of life is so much better in, in Britain, but there's a lot less culture yeah, at the street level. Um I mean, the power, I suppose, lends in a way. I mean, you were, you were seeing the kind of naked exposure of the power structure, you know, the police, and the riots in Brixton, and then the miners' strike. So there was an atmosphere of, uh, of foment on the streets, which was, you know, a great time to be a performer and to be a left-wing performer. Accommodation was cheap, and travel was relatively cheap. And also for us, there was only seven comedians in London, and I was one of them. <laughs> You're hearing a conversation I recorded with comedian Alexi Sale at the recent Melbourne Writers' Festival. And at this point, I opened the floor to questions. And Alexi got a question that was a little out of left field. Uh, yeah, do you know the capital of Burkina Faso? <laughs> Is it Wagadudu? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that will go on my list of uh, weird questions in the Q&A. I was doing one in Liverpool recently and the bloke said, uh, he said, what's the latest you've ever stayed up? <laughs> I couldn't think of a really smart answer, so I said to him, uh, I said, what's the latest you've ever stayed up? And he said, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> Please thank Alexi Sale. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.